Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm Emma Fisher from Editorial Intelligence. Uh, thank you on behalf of EI for coming this morning. Just to briefly introduce Ravi while we're getting settled. Ravi is uh, editor of Business Life at the Financial Times. He was previously editor of the Special Reports at the Financial Times and a founding editor of FT Wealth. Before that, at Prospect Magazine and at Harper's uh, Magazine. So I will hand over to Ravi to introduce our panellists for the first session today to talk about today's top talent. Thanks, Emma, and thank you to EI and to Julia and everyone else for um, inviting me um, and us. We're media partners of EI, so obviously we're very sympathetic to a lot of the things they're doing. And thank you very much, Koi. Um, despite my reservations about Apple sometimes, um, he proved the point that actually it's a great example in many ways of all the stuff we're talking about today. And as business leaders and people in business and work, um, all the things we're dealing with all the time. Now, as Emma mentioned, I'm the editor of Business Life, which is the management section of the FT. Um, and one of the great things about that job is I get to talk to lots of people who run businesses um, or work at businesses and organization. And one of the things that really resonates with all of them is this topic we're discussing today, talent, um, people, leadership, how to get the most out of them. And irrespective of the size of the organization, whether it's a small business, startup, massive conglomerates, everyone struggles with how to make this thing work. Um, in fact, two days ago, I was hosting a session at the FT, and I, I know some of you were, were there with um, some leaders, some grandees of the city. Um, and one of the things that was a real struggle is to how to translate all of these things that we talk about when it comes to managing people into actually doing. Um, it often seems quite obvious, but I know myself, and I manage a very small team, it's not easy to necessarily do. So that's why we've got a great panel here, and I'm very excited to introduce them all, um, because these people have all done it, are doing it, and have some great thoughts on how to make that transition from great ideas to great action. So um, there are very extensive bios of all of them in the booklets you have. Um, so I'm going to just start by introducing very, very quickly. Um, to my left, we have Karen Mattis Mattison, uh, founder of TimeWise Jobs. Next, Simon North, co-founder of Position Ignition. Um, Joseph Lample from Cass Business School, and Andy Doyle, Group HR Director at ITV. So first, I'm going to go in, in order of chairs, if that's all right. Um, Karen, why don't you start us off? I think that uh, the perspective I bring to uh, this discussion of um, how to make today's top talent more productive is a very specific one. And I think that um, now is the time for us to really, in business, embrace flexibility not as a grudging concession that we have to do because legislation is telling us to, but because actually for many businesses, for many different reasons, it actually makes enormous business sense for us. Um, and it's a real, makes real business sense for our talent strategy. Um, effectively, offering flexibility to people who work for you means you can get more talent in less time. You can get yourself you know, a £50,000 person for £25,000, so you, you get the experience that you might need to grow your business, um, but it can cost you less. It can seriously help diversity, 
and it can stop the leaking pipeline of women to the top that we're seeing and talking about all the time. I just wanted to speak like for half a minute about my own story and my perspective on this, which was that when I was um, in my early 30s, I found myself in a position that many other people do, which is that I had skills, I had 15 years of work experience, um, and I had children, and I wanted to find work that I could fit around the children but still use my skills and experience. And I couldn't find any of that kind of work, not because I wasn't getting the jobs, but because I couldn't find any jobs to apply for. Um, and then I realised that it wasn't just me, there were hundreds of thousands of other people who had skills and experience, had enormous amount to offer to the world of work, but just didn't fit into what was quite a rigid box. And um, what I discovered when I stopped working was that, that many businesses had an extreme need of those people. So for example, especially at that time, the kind of businesses that I was meeting was the smaller growing businesses who um, actually completely got the fact that they might want a finance director, but they didn't need them all week, but they didn't know where to fish into that kind of talent pool. Um, and I set up TimeWise Jobs really because of that market failure. And the fact that 35,000 candidates have registered with us over the last um, couple of years shows me, and all by word of mouth, no advertising, shows me the hunger that there is for that kind of flexible working. Um, and that businesses really need that experience because, um, for all the reasons that I talked about. Um, but one of the things that we've got to deal with at the moment is the really negative perception that there is around part-time and flexible working. We did some research and we found that there are actually um, there are 600,000 people working in part-time or flexible jobs earning over £40,000 £40, a year in the UK, but they're generally hidden and no one had actually interviewed them. And if you ask most businesses, or they'll say, well, part-time flexible roles could be used for more junior roles, but actually it's being done but there's an enormous stigma around it. So last week, published in the FT, we produced a power list of people who are actually working in very senior roles part-time, including the CEO of Dixon's, a woman working a four-day week, including the woman who writes the inflation report at the Bank of England, including someone who's in a really senior role at Accenture, managing 900 people. So part-time flexible work can be done in senior roles and is being done, but it's often being done under the radar. And I think that's a problem. Not, because, not for those very people at the top that are doing it, but because for people um, like me in their 30s and 40s who are leaving our workforce, who've got skills and experience, they're leaving because they don't see the role models and they don't think it can be done. But with that bit of flexibility in terms of the world of work about what's possible, I think we, are, we will stop the hemorrhaging of talent that we're getting, particularly from women in their 30s and 40s. Fantastic. Simon. <coughs> Good morning, everybody. I'd, I'd like to um, lead off by uh, segueing with what Karen's just said. And in your um, biography, in, in the booklet in front of you, the final words are that the pool of talent was hidden from view. And I completely concur with that in my experience. As a coach, one of the ethical underpins of coaching is that every individual is resourceful, creative, and whole. Just think about that. Think about that in your own context, that you are resourceful, creative, and whole. And listen to what we were hearing in that fabulous opening speech about the drive and the inner confidence and the belief and the nurturing that had gone on for the people that were cited in that. But I think you have to put that into the situation, the complication, the ecosystems 
that most individuals are having to work in the 21st century. And I'm thinking particularly about the rhythm and the pace at which they work, the focus, the long, the hard hours that they put in, how tiring, indeed exhausting it can be, and what space they have or they have not got. Either that which is, in inverted commas, allowable by the organization that employs them, or indeed the family life that they're trying to balance at the same time. We all recognize these things. Last year, Sir Paul Nurse, when giving the Dimbleby lecture, Sir Paul Nurse being one of our most brilliant scientists, drew a correlation between freedom in Britain and innovation. Our ability to create and innovate as scientists, as engineers, as individuals, was highly correlated to the country that we are lucky enough to live in the mature economy within which we work. Yes, we're in tough conditions, but then pretty much everybody else is. And I'm in the middle of a fabulous book by a woman called Brené, Dr. Brené Brown, who is writing about vulnerability. She's studied vulnerability for over a decade, and she believes that vulnerability underpins creativity and innovation. And I thought, gosh, that's quite interesting. In the context of this nurturing that we were hearing about and the need for conditions to be right, nurturing, in my mind, is about gentle. Leadership, top talent conditions, is around toughness, because we're in a tough and commercial world, but toughness is not hard. Toughness is different to hard because it has flexibility in it. And toughness and gentleness is, a, is an interesting thing. Now, I also wanted to comment just briefly on who has responsibility for the development of us, of talent generally. Who, where does that responsibility lie? What that makes me think is the difference between talent on the one hand and career on the other. The word career came up this morning. If you're starting off now, leaving full-time education, you're looking at a minimum of 50 years of economic working as an adult, unless you are you know, hugely um, lucky or brilliant and you earn enough that you can actually have choice later on. That's a, long, that's a lot of life. Organizations are interested in talent for their own ends, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's about the shareholder, that's about commercials, that's about developing talent for themselves. The individual talent, however, has, should have a different agenda, and you've heard a little bit about this in the first minutes of this conference, is I think three-way components around the individual and how they develop. One is around their technical know-how. You know, when Durkheim talked about the division of labor all those years ago, we have a situation now where you have to be quite brilliant at what you know, technically. And then, in addition, you have to build on your personal development to be able to do loads of other things, but mainly it's about your attitude and about your ability to interrelate and be part of teams and some of the things that we've heard already. I would put a third dimension to it, and that is around how you manage your way through that 50-year working life. Because all of the statistics are showing that if you roll back a generation, on average, somebody had just one or two, maybe three jobs and organizations that they work for. A child being born today in London is likely to have between 20 and 40 
different jobs and organisations that they're going to work for. Because it's about flexibility, it's about freeing up, it's about transportation, it's about I'm Generation Y, I'm not interested in committing to you and your flagpole forever, like my father or my grandfather might have done. Yeah? It's a very, very different world. And I think to come back to what Karen was saying about flexibility, that for me is about control, and it's about hoping that by controlling individuals that you will get the de dependency response, that they will unflinchingly and unknowingly commit to you, and that's a real danger in that, because organisations cannot promise any longer the long-term commitment to the future, because they're in a, such a competitive, globalised world. That's just the world that we live in. So we have to be smarter. We have to be more flexibly minded. And those are the seeds of growth for talent, where, whichever sector they're in. Thank you, Simon. Um, Joseph. Uh, thank you. I've been uh, teaching, my, my work is, I'm essentially a teacher of strategy, and I've been teaching strategy for about 30 years. And uh, some people claim that strategy cannot be taught, really. Uh, let me just say a few words about the kind of thing I look for when I, I, I kind of walk into class for the first day, which is strategy, teaching strategy requires the students to be able to have certain kind of contradictory abilities and therefore certain kind of talents. They have to be able to shift uh, levels of analysis very quickly. They have to go both very general and very specific. Uh, they have to have a a certain insight into pattern recognition, so to be able to see certain patterns and see them almost instantaneously. They have to be able to master details rather than getting lost in details. Uh, they have to be able to get a certain kind of leap of insights, which allows them to kind of to see into certain kind of alternatives, certain kind of scenarios. Uh, they have to be able to spin in their heads in certain ways, certain kind of alternatives and various actions that are possible. Now, some people claim for that reason the strategy cannot be taught, so in a sense you could say that I'm a practitioner of futility, uh, having to try to teach uh, young people, not so young people, uh, then, you know, sort of master those skills. So in a sense you can teach people to certain strategic skills, but can you actually teach them to be talented strategists? Uh, it depends, let's put it this way. My experience is, generally speaking, when I walk into a classroom for the first day, after 30 years, I know that at least 5% uh, of that particular group will have, will demonstrate almost instantaneously talent for that particular, for, for strategy, for those skills, if you wish, the combination of those skills. A reasonable number of them, let's say 10% to 15%, depending on the population. Obviously, in cash, we probably have an even higher population of that, uh, seem to be able to emerge, you know, they kind of, it comes out of them in some form or another. And it's a mystery to me as to why it does. Now you can say, as I think was said earlier, that, you know, talent is an invisible gift. You know, it's really left, you know, when you're born, it's given to you. It's invisible because you don't know what it is, how much of it you got. It's obviously not an either or. Some people have more on one or the other. Some people have it in areas they don't suspect. They spend a lot of their life doing something which they are not really talented in. And I have to say, the enemy of talent there's a digressive enemy of talent is doing things you can do, but not necessarily do it brilliantly. And society sometimes rewards the things you do well, but not necessarily the things that you are really talented at. So the question is, then, you know, where, where does it come from? We don't know. But it's a talent that you yourself have to, in some ways, discover. 
that others can help you discover. Now, what are the enemies of talent, in a sense? You know, this is something that I've you know, observed again and again. Now, here is a paradox, not a paradox about talent. Talent requires conviction. Without conviction, in fact, you won't have the development of talent. But it also verges into ego. Uh, I mean, uh, I admire very much the Stones, the Rolling Stones, but I've never been a great fan of the Rolling Stones because I have a certain kind of aversion to uh, big egos. Uh, I mean, uh, I admire aggressive egos such as the ones of uh, Steve Jobs or, uh, or the Rolling Stones. But I have a greater admiration for shy ego, for shy individuals, shy talent, talent which is quiet, which is quite, you know, conviction which is sort of, <laughs> tends to travel under the surface to some extent. My heroes would be much more, like I was watching a documentary recently about Bletchley Park, for instance. I mean, an extraordinary collection of individuals, idiosyncratic, unusual, uh, incredibly talented in incredibly different ways, doing what was considered to be impossible and doing it uh, in a way which laid the foundations for so much of, of, of modern technology later on. Uh, that's talent. Now, in terms of teams, these people walked in a kind of collection, an aggregation of people together where all of them have their different talents. So, in that sense, you know, they brought talent in each other. They were able to do that. Now, to go one other step towards the issue of talent, talents without skills is, is definitely not uh, possible. So we may have this between talent and skills, but clearly they are not distinct. Is there such thing as natural talent? They, you know, the talent, as I said, people walking into my classroom seem to have right away. There probably is certain amount of natural talent, but without skills, it usually goes to waste. So the two come together. Whether it takes 10,000 or 5,000 or 15,000, 25,000, I don't know, and I don't know, but I've read Gladwell's book and I'm not entirely persuaded it's that straightforward. Uh, talent grows through stretching, okay? So stretching is crucial. So by what I mean by stretching is to say you challenge people, they challenge themselves, they're challenged by their environment, and then they stretch. The skills fit into their talent, the talents fit into stretching, and stretching feelings fits into various, uh, various uh, further development. So, just to conclude, in terms of a question I was asked, the address when I, I was told to come on this particular panel is about the pool of talent in the UK. Do we have a pool of talent? Our answer is, of course, Britain has always been remarkable in producing an extraordinary uh, talent pool or talent, uh, you know, uh, manifest talent beyond its, its national size. Uh, but the question that one has to ask about the pool of talent is it's not so much a numerical issue it is very much, again, in terms of stretching issues. Can you take a particular group of people and stretch them, get them to go further? Uh, in effect, what we do know from uh, studying the history of extraordinary achievement, going back to Bletchley Park or any other large endeavor, is sometimes it doesn't take a lot of people to produce remarkable results. In fact, adding more people will actually diminish the results. So the question is, how do you get to have that ability to it's stretch talent to make it count for a lot more. And the answer, obviously, is ambition, benchmarking, competition, peers, etc. If there's one thing I could say about having lived in New York City, since New York was brought up as sort of the, the hub of extraordinary talent uh, in London, and I prefer living in London, by the way, to New York, uh, the one thing I have to say about, about New York is by virtue of the fact that people come from all over the world, as they do to London, it is very clear that the benchmark is global. The peer is global. 
Nothing less than the global will do. The difficulty with talent is when it settles for the local. It's comfortable with what is right here and now. So therefore, I suppose, the real question is how do you get that mindset? How do you get people to stretch? So we'll just leave it there. We can talk about it later, maybe. Thank you, Joseph. Um, Andy. I feel such a fraud, because <coughs> I'm a practitioner. You know, and I, this morning when I was um, getting up, and like many of you, I was kind of kids, all the rest of it going on in the house. I was in the shower, and I thought, oh, what am I doing today? I'll oh, go to that conference. Getting dressed, and I thought, oh, is it a suit? Is it a tie? Um, lost my bottle and put, took the chinos off and put the suit back on because I thought I best conform. Um, and I think that's about something I've found in organisations is the, the desire for conformity. And one of the things that we face with talent today is talent gets to choose because it's scarce. And I've worked in lots of different industries. Um, and however that plays itself out, whether you're looking for the best quantity surveyors, the best software developers, or the best creators of new programming ideas at ITV, um, that talent gets to choose. And so uh, it's as much about what sort of culture you have and what, you know, what sort of organisation you are as to whether you can attract that talent into your organisation. And I think the other thing we found is that talent is very rarely complete, um, whether it's unreasonable, whether it's gifted, whatever that the human characteristics are that make that talent special, um, you've, I've yet to meet anybody in that we would say is really talented, makes a huge difference to the organisation that can do it on their own. And how you surround people with uh, the right skill set around them, like the Rolling Stones, I guess, but is a really critical part. And I think HR functions have this desire for everybody to be perfect and everybody to be able to do everything, and they're not. And any HR professional that tries to do that is, on a, is just going to get themselves really stressed out because they'll never find it, except that you've got to pay to people's strengths um, and put people in teams to make that work. And, and I guess that the final point is, as talent's got more complex, um, and I'm, HR processes, we've tried to kind of pretend there's a magical process called talent management and that you can do all these things in a scientific way and follow these processes and there's lots of research behind them and therefore they must be right for your organisation at this time and this place. Um, I think that's nonsense. I, I think the scientification of HR processes is a real risk because more and more times managers have not got a clue what you're talking about. Uh, and keeping it really simple and real uh, for managers to be able to engage in real conversations with real people about stuff they find difficult is the real key. And what HR functions have tried to hide behind is complex nonsense for me that managers don't understand, don't believe in and don't use. And I'd rather keep something really, really simple and get things like you can talk about performance management and succession planning and all the talent tools that you like. Um, if you can get it into the real organisation as part of the real conversation, it's so much more powerful. That's me. Fantastic. Well, it seems to me we have two kind of perspectives in a way here. On the one hand, we're saying the question is how do you develop top talent? But then listening to you, Joseph, for instance, and indeed you, Andy, to some extent, just you say you go into a class, you know exactly which percentage of the people are going to basically respond to the stuff you're giving them. Likewise, Andy, talent is scarce and therefore they can choose where they go. So are we, are we asking the wrong questions slightly in the sense that ultimately it just it requires you to get the best people. And once you get the best people, those are the ones that are going to be the top talent anyways. Um, Simon, you, you come from big corporate organizations now, a very different perspective now in terms of what you're doing and you're dealing with all the big corporates. Does it come down to just basically getting the best people to start with? 
No, I don't think it does. Um, clearly, you know, in a, you're always going to have a, a normal distribution, um, but I think that uh, there's a huge amount that organisations can do if they have the sort of mindset that Karen was talking about. So, um, the type of people that I work with, either because they've come from a, uh, because the corporate has asked us to work with them, or indeed the individual has found us to work with, tend to be in quite difficult situations where actually what is creating the complexity and the complications of the individual is often the, the sort of sense that they're locked in, that, that something, there's an edifice that has been built around them with a mindset and a presumption and a set of assumptions that this is that there's no way out. And actually, if you bring what I was saying earlier on about, you know, this individual has got a lot going for them. They've got a lot of experience, they've got a lot of skill, they've got a lot of wisdom. How can that be used? And it probably means that it has to be used in a different way with a different set of parameters. And, it's, and it feels sometimes like, you know, going to uh, a chateau that's been shut up for the winter and just throwing open the shutters and allowing the sunlight in. And then when you get that, more innovative, more energetic conversation, both for the individual and those that they work with, you have a completely different conversation, which usually, in our experience, has a great outcome. Andy, can I put that to you? Um, in the sense that, do you buy that? I mean, have there been situations you've been, you know, at Morrison's, ITV, big companies, where essentially someone you didn't expect, all of a sudden you've seen the light and they're kind of the second coming of the great employee? Um, does that actually happen in real life? Because you talked about the talent management nonsense not actually leading to the, the outcomes we, we talk about. I think there's always exceptions. So, you know, and, and it's not, you don't want to cut, cut, say, you know, I have a, I, I start from an assumption that everyone comes to work to do a great job. Uh, you know, so I, I think we share the same base point. Um, I think there's an acceptance that there are skills that people have that says, you know, we, we, we know that there is an unconscious bias when people look at CVs, they look at people, the way people work, they say, oh, this person's gone to a great business school, they've got a great degree, they've got all the right academics, they're therefore going to be brilliant. And, you know, that's really true. I mean, <coughs> yes, they might have lots of, they might be academically brilliant. We, we run apprentice programs with really disadvantaged parts of society and bring people into our organisation that probably historically wouldn't have thought of joining ITV, that wouldn't have thought about um, coming to the organisation, and it took some persuading of line managers to manage people in a different way. Line managers weren't used to people having to talk about timekeeping or talking about, um, you know, what you wear to work and that sort of thing. You know, so that's a different set of skills for our line managers. And when we introduced an apprentice programme, it was chaos for a bit, and I was like, oh God, what have we done? You know, it's like, now we really need to talk about what is acceptable to wear to the office and how you talk to people and how you shake hands. I mean, real basic skills. But that's because no one had taken that group, you know, there were no role models for that group that we had recruited. They hadn't got that at school. They hadn't got that from their home. So you do have to find ways of doing that. But equally, there's how much, as an employer, what's the return on your investment and what kind of culture you're trying to create and what you're trying to deliver for your return. So we're not a charity. We seek to find great talent and, you know, unleash it and make it work because that will drive a better organisation and more profitability for us. So, you know, there is, a, there is a balance between those two things. Karen, you obviously, as you said, have come from big corporates and now you're doing a very different thing and you had kids and so it's still a lot of people will face. Um, something, in, in, you know, my own wife deals with as well. Uh, do you think the big question is the organizational one, that we need to think of a new way of developing companies, organizations, 
that can cope with this kind of new way of working. Because as, as Andy points out, the struggle is, of course, everyone has shareholders. The pressure is more intense than it ever has been. Um, when you don't get it right, people like the FT get on your case that you're not doing things well. And when it comes to flexible models, that's an easy thing to cut and not think about, frankly. I think that um, the first thing is that it has to work for the business because it's, you're not doing anybody any favors if you reshape everything in order to fit somebody and it doesn't work for the business. And I think my point is that often when it doesn't work for the business, sometimes it's just a failure of imagination and it's always been, you know, who says the week, week is five days? You know, if you manage 900 people, you're not going to meet them all in five days. So maybe you could meet them. <laughs> Would you do it any differently in four days? And I think it's just about changing the mindset so that you don't have such fixed structures and being open to flexibility. And, but I absolutely think that it's got to work. You, it has to have a, be a benefit to you as a business. There's no point in doing it. But, it. but one of the benefits is obviously retaining somebody who otherwise would go to a competitor. And so somebody who you've given all, this, all the training to, all the development, 10, 15 years investment in, for the sake of a day a week, would you want to lose them? And equally, if you say you're open to that kind of flexibility, could you attract somebody where you may not have the salary? And one of the interesting things is that um, some work that we've done with some of the employers who recruit through us is we ask them, you know, the top three things that they're looking for at the point of recruitment. So number one, has that person got the right skills? And in this order, have they got the right skills and experience for the job? Number two is the salary package. Can we agree on it? And number three on that list of priorities is the kind of hours and location and kind of how the whole thing works logistically. When we talk to some of the really senior candidates, the thing that's the, the kind of deal breaker for them is the hours and location and can I make this work with my life and it may be they only need a very tiny bit of flexibility a half a day a week or, or a late start or whatever it is in order for it to work number two for them is the salary package and number three they don't even think about the fact they've, they've got the skills and experience so if it's number three on your list of priorities I think my point is be open to that conversation be open to a different way of thinking about it Joseph I mean you're teaching, I mean, you already have a filter system before people get to your class, obviously, because people have to apply to your school, very competitive market, you have a good reputation, et cetera, et cetera, um, and you have a great networking profile here. Um, yet even then, there's a tiny percentage of that you find are the ones responsive to it. Uh, does this kind of uh, resonate with what you're seeing in organizations? I mean, that the Bletchley Park example, for instance, you're already starting with a set of highly intelligent people. So that's a pretty good point at which to kind of code break. You know, people have specialized skills and talent. Um, surely that kind of means you're, you're way ahead of the game already. Well, I mean, one has to bear in mind, we're talking about one area, which is strategy. Uh, people can be extraordinarily talented accountants or finance or marketing. There's all these other areas, okay? Uh, I am kind of maybe being self-centered by thinking that strategies very important because obviously I teach it. So you're I being a shy ego, right? A shy ego, right? Okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I, you know, tend to sort of look at it from my perspective. But I think that you know to go back to what you just said, I think is really crucial. It's the filtering. Uh, I studied creative industries. Okay. One of the things creative industries, which are highly decentralized for the most part, is uh, the importance of talented people who are good at spotting talent. So the talent scout, the talent engine, there's a whole set of people, okay, who come up or become brilliant at identifying, understanding, knowing talent. 
and they don't usually come under the HR rubric, okay? So one of the fundamental problems with large organizations is they don't, they don't actually have a lot of this kind of people, maybe because it's usually the line managers who are supposed to be able to go out and find these people and bring them in and then go through the process that was mentioned. But to my mind, ultimately, we also have to ask is how good at a develop, are we developing people who can spot these sort of people? And my view is we are not. So even when it comes to applying to, to, to MBA at CAS, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to our candidates. We try our best. It's not easy, okay? And once they come into the classroom, some turn up really fantastic, others obviously do not. So, so, uh, so ultimately, this is not, I'm not trying to kind of make a case of despair, you know, I'm saying quite the opposite, optimism, but I think we have to realize that the magnitude of the task is not simply that once we have the individual we develop, we have to also find the individual who can find the individual. It's interesting, I, I was talking to um, the head of a, a pretty big branding agency a few days ago, and one of the things he said is he hopes through the network effect to not have to use recruitment consultants by next year at all for his organization. They're very prominent creative agency. So that network effect is quite interesting. I'm going to throw it to the audience for some questions. I don't know what the timing is like, but uh, if anyone has any questions, if you could identify yourself and where you're from. Hi, my name's Angela Ferreira. I wanted to talk about the part-time working. Um, and I can see that there's a great deal of benefit to a company to employ somebody part-time. Um, however, with these reports out recently, one only today about people being underemployed and a lot of people not wanting to work part-time, they actually want full-time hours. From the view of a part-time worker, um, quite often the part-time worker is employed part-time but is in actual fact required to work more hours than they're contracted for um, and the company really wants them to work full-time so I just wanted to know what the panel thought about that. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's two issues. One, um, if I just take the underemployment point first, so there are 8 million people that are about working part-time in the UK at the moment and 78% of them are part-time because they choose to be, so choose part-timers. So I think it's always important to, when, we, when the media covers the employment statistics as they did yesterday, the focus is very much on the underemployment part of that, but that is about 20% of it, and it is slowly growing, so there's absolutely no question. Um, but I think one of the things that's really important to remember is that doesn't actually reflect the vast majority of people who are working in the UK part-time who are choosing it. Um, I think the separate issue, which is around um, the kind of issue of job creep, I think is what you're talking about. I think it can be really dangerous. Um, one of the things that we find is there are certain roles now in, in our kind of working society where the, the jobs creep into our lives. So how many people in senior roles, the first thing they do in the morning is check their emails. They're still doing it at 10 o'clock at night. That's true whether they're part-time or full-time. I would say in, in roles that take more responsibility and I think sometimes we use that, that stick to beat the concept of part-time working because we say jobs going to creep and I think for me part-time is saying you know there's a day of week of me that you don't own that I won't fill my diary. Am I contactable in a senior role? I'm running a business. Yes I am. Those, those kind of roles don't creep in it so the receptionist in my business I wouldn't expect her to be answering the phone at 8 o'clock at night, whether she's a three-day week person or a five-day. But I think we are all generally, as a kind of broader point of work, looking at very worrying aspect of job creep. into, And, and that is the flip side of the great technology that we all have, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that 
the issue of work-life balance for all of us and how productive we are and how good is that email you send at midnight and does it make you look completely crazy if you've responded to something at two in the morning? You know, I think that's something for us all to think about and we have to be careful not to use it as a stick around part-time. David Johnson, Social Mobility Foundation. <clears throat> We're a charity that works with children who are mostly on free school meals, 85% um, from ethnic minorities, 65% female, and 53% of them will go to the Russell Group universities um, that were touched on. And my question is really how good the panel think businesses are at defining talent and defining what the best is, because we target those professions where they're, they're, that group is particularly underrepresented, law, media, medicine, etc. And one of the problems we know exists in the interview room is that idea of, well, these people are not really what our clients expect. You know, they might have all the right grades and have got as far as the interview room, but, but they're not going to reflect what our clients would expect from us. And so I wonder how good you think they are, and if they're not good how, at, at actually defining what the best or, or talent is, it might be to do with something else. How do you change that? Because to me, it requires quite a leap of faith to do something different, and businesses are very conservative about that. Maybe we start with Andy as a practitioner. You know, how good are they, and are, are they able to change the way they approach that question? I'm really delighted that question came to me first. <laughs> um, I don't buy business. I mean, I think one of the challenges for, for organisations is where managers kind of recruit their own image, and there is a huge temptation that says, you know, did you go? You know, I, I stereotype. Did you go to the same university? And you know, can I recognise your background like mine? Um, and I think our challenge, and actually I think this is where HR function can add real value in processes of trying to um, widen those talent pools and trying to widen the choice for managers. And I think that's where we've done that with our apprentice programme. It's really interesting, 91% of the people that join our apprentice programme find full-time work at the end of their programme. And that, that for us is really, and 80% and of them within ITV. And we never thought when we sent that apprentice programme out, that's what would happen. We kind of fell into it a bit and what managers say is it's opened their eyes to a whole group of new talent that they wouldn't have historically found and we found our way through bits that we go you know what we're not really good with dealing with people that are under 18 we, we've learned that in some of the we're better off dealing with people that are 18 kind of coming into the world of, of work not when they're 16 because we couldn't cope um, so I think we, we found our way through that but I do think that the job of our recruitment processes and one of the downsides of the networking piece of kind of going through recruitment is that you can exclude groups from, from your talent pools unintentionally. 93% uh, of the jobs that we recruit at ITV are done by our own in-house recruitment team. We don't use agencies as a, as a default. And, and it's been interesting, we've shifted radically the population that we recruit as a result of that shift. And, and we broadly have, just in terms of gender and ethnicity, twice as many people who join us today um, are from BME backgrounds than, than are in the population. So about 18% of the people that join ITV are from BME backgrounds. That's really different to what it was five years ago. And I think that's because we've widened our talent pools and widened our outlook on what we're doing. I mean, and just on that point, I mean, when people come as an apprentice, say young ones, for instance, do you kind of help them learn the language of business in the sense that, you know, uh, I talked to someone who mentors at a local school, uh, uh, and one of the things she said was that the biggest, the most important uh, skill she could teach the person she was mentoring is how to shake someone's hand in an office and look them in the eye and make sure their hair's not in their eyes. Uh, how do you deal with that? Because presumably some of the kids that maybe are applying for your things 
are, are dealing with that, or are they kind of beyond that already? Because no, no, we do. Uh, you know, day one, shaking hands. We we do on day, the first two weeks of their induction is all around now what to wear to work, how you shake someone's hand, how you look someone in the eye, how you make polite cocktail party small talk. Mm. Uh, and I know it sounds really dull, but just having three or four questions that you can ask so there's not that embarrassed silence. There are things that we all take for granted and we'll wander up to people that we didn't know this morning and say, hello, where have you come from? Mm. What are you doing? Actually, if you don't know that, and no one's ever told you that, you just stand there in silence. So how do you, how do you give people really practical, simple skills who haven't got them? Simon, you want to come in on this? Yeah, well, this is what I was driving at a little bit earlier on. I, I, I'm not going to take a pop at any employers. I think what Andy has said would be reflected across British um, industry. They are doing their darndest to get the whole resourcing process right. Right for them, and they do it in a professional way. So don't be in any doubt that that's what you'll find across UK PLC. Similarly, within the education system, you have institutions that are doing their darndest to produce great product for us as employers. The focus, however, as we all know, is very, very academic. It's very much about, you know, how many GCSEs at this level have you got, and then, you know, where do they all go on? And there is something in the middle. And the bit in the middle is what Andy's just talked about there, which is the basic, what I would say, personal humanistic skills. Now, we can judge that as employers. I'm much more interested in what does it feel like as a young person when you don't even know that what you don't know you don't know, yeah? And we need to do, I feel, more, put more energy into that. And also what I was saying earlier on about how one has to be able to manage your career over a long period. You're an economic worker with expectations of what you're going to get for your labor, whether it's on a full part-time, whatever basis over a long period of time. You need to think about yourself as a product. You need to understand your technical spec, the value that you carry at any moment in your life, and you need to know how you sell it, how you market it, personal branding, whatever it may be you want to call it, but how you sell it. And these skills are things that we sort of want our young people to have you know, at some early point, the earlier the better, because then they're going to feel more nurtured, more confident, things that we were hearing in the opening speech this morning about what makes great talent able to do great things. So many themes that were raised there. Uh, uh, let me say this, that uh, our education system is, was created in the 19th century. It was kind of spruced up a bit and repainted in the 20th century. Uh, it's not really up to what it requires to do in the 21st century. Uh, I could talk about it for a long time, but let me just say one, I'll pick on one theme, a simple point, which is that educational systems in general are bureaucratic. Uh, they are actually a bit like the mass assembly, and even, though, even in the independent sector, by the way, in that sense, the difference in the independent sector is you, you may be able to pay teachers more, so you have ability to pick uh, teachers you want, but in the end it's the same system. Uh, and what it does is teaches uh, children to focus. So it's an extraordinarily good for teaching how to focus, but it's not good at teaching how to explore. And I think the fundamental issue in the 21st century is that talent must find its way, as you said. If you ha if you'd start with children very early, teaching them how to explore, you have 
not just encouraging to explore, but the tactics of exploration. Now that we have the web, now that we have all these incredible resources out there, uh, it's not enough that we have it. There are skills involved in knowing how to explore it. So explore ideas, explore avenues, explore, and then being able to marry that exploration to something which has sort of deliverables. So that's all I would say about the education system. We are not good at that. And I don't really have, uh, at this point, any concrete proposals, but I'm sure that some people will. Picking up on that, I mean, to some extent, because uh, we all agree about everything on this panel, so I'm going to be a bit controversial. Um, is it, we talk about what kind of the education system should do for individuals, we talk about what companies should do for individuals, but surely the tools you talk about, the web, you know, the ability to network and link in and talk to people in a way we couldn't, access them in a way we couldn't. Is there not extra urgency incumbent upon individuals? The onus is on them to basically use this stuff? So you talk about exploring quite rightly, and with my young kids, I say, you know, go and climb a tree. It's quite fun. At the same time, their ability to access information is extraordinary. At the age of four, my son can negotiate an iPad um, better than my, my parents can. So when we talk about this bureaucratic nature of education system, I don't disagree necessarily, but aren't Rather than waiting for organizations and companies, individuals need to kind of go out and sort out for themselves increasingly, don't they, Simon? I think, I, I think they do. I think they have, to, they have to learn that in the sort of way that we heard earlier on about, you know, my Christmas present to you is to give you uh, time, you know, as a father, as a mother, as, a, as an uncle, an auntie, a godmother, whatever. I think those sorts of things, they don't cost money. Really, I mean, time is an incredibly scarce commodity for us. But you know, we do have time. We 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 take out, you know, Christmas time or whenever it may be to actually do that. But in answer to the, the the question, the comments that were made a moment ago, I do think that what we're facing are all of those things. That it is a 21st century phenomenon, and no, we do not have the answer. It's not like we can. There's a single silver bullet that we can swallow, and everything will be um, absolutely right. The, uh, the, a new McKinsey report that I think is just about, or just has been published, is talking about not just Britain, but a number of other countries that they've been looking at. And the imbalance in, the, in, the, in employment with a lot of unskilled people who can't find work and unless something's done won't find work. And one of the things it concludes, and those of you who are my age will think, well, gosh, I've been hearing this for the last 35 years, is we don't have enough people in the sciences, in science and in engineering, because those are the things that historically we've been really very strong at in our economy. Um, I think, back to what Joseph has just been saying, it is about identity. I think the problem that youngsters coming out and in, out of uh, full-time education into work is finding their identity, their identity with their work and where they're going to go with it. And, you know, there's some fantastic um, research around this subject, but what I note about identity is you find it by exploration, and exploration leads you to ex experimentation. And you look at some of the role models that were thrown up on the screen an hour ago, those people didn't wake up and say, ooh, I'm going to create one of the iconic organizations of the 20th, 21st century. They didn't do that. They found their way to it. They found their way to it by loads of things that were inside of them, but also the people that they found along the way that they would partner with and do, some, do stuff with. So, you know, the expectations on 
all of us, on every one of us, is really, really high. And it's a bit like going into a, a forest without a torch, you know? You have to find your own <coughs> pathway through the trees. Karen, you wanted to come in on this, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's plenty of evidence that shows that, you know, the kind of intergenerational worklessness, you know, the single thing that's going to help you get a job is growing up in a family where your parents work. And I think that we need to remember, you know, touching on some of the points from the audience, the experience of people who don't have that and how we can supplement that. And I'm a real believer that looking for a job is such an important life skill, touching on what you were saying. You know, I, I met the woman who runs Harrods and she said the graduate trainee programme includes things like she goes in and talks to them about at a dinner, turning to your left, turning to your right. You know, no one told me about that. And um, I, I do think that underpinning so much of what we're talking about in terms of encouraging people to sort of maximise their potential is the issue of confidence. And if your confidence is relatively low and you look at a job description or you see an ad for a role, um, you only think about the bits of it that you don't have. If your confidence is high and you've got, there's a lot of talk about mentoring, but you know, I think let's talk about sponsors and people, you've got somebody really pushing you forward, looking at the skills you need to actually get that job. I think then you're much more likely to go for it. And the kind of things that I would say to our candidates and even to my own children is, who say that they won't get a job, I say, well, you definitely won't get a job if you don't apply for it. But equally, but equally, the skills required to get that job are very specific and, and we're often not taught them, which is what I think we need to be thinking about. Okay, I feel like we're veering off the top talent side of mm. things, but um, does anyone have any questions regarding to that? Coming back to the top talent. Good, good timing. <laughs> <laughs> um, Henrietta Royal, Fanshawe Halden. Um, I'm uh, one of the founder members of the 30% Club, and we're not only, now we see getting some progress on um, women non-execs, but we're particularly focused on the executive pipeline. And obviously with two, only two uh, female CEOs in the FTSE, um, it's a very timely thing. Clearly, uh, the sorts of things that Karen's been talking about are important, but my observation is also that women are possibly less tolerant of bad management than men, and that I find it amazing how difficult managers seem to find it to talk to their staff about the difficult stuff. I mean, Andy was mentioning that earlier. How little uh, training often that companies give to their managers in terms of how you do this. And women, I think, suffer this more than, more than the unusually because mo still most managers are men and they really find it difficult to talk to women about what they would see as women-type stuff and they will run a mile rather than do it. How do we actually get companies and the senior <coughs> management to actually understand that, that they really do have to do something about the hemorrhaging of uh, female talent in the middle and upper middle levels, which they are still facing, and learn how to actually keep those people, develop those people, and talk to them and build a culture where it is attractive for them to stay and to thrive and to grow. Andy, once again, I'm coming to you as a starter. Um, you know, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I, now I'm really lucky. I work in, I've worked in the construction industry, which was nearly completely male-dominated. And I think of our, when I worked in the construction industry, I remember going to a conference, and it was our top 400 leaders. And there was, you know, a couple of accountants that were within our general council and the rest of it was a sea of middle-aged men with dandruff in blue suits. Um, no, didn't all have dandruff. 
Um, I didn't because I didn't have any hair. Um, I then left that construction company and joined ITV, which is um, 50%, or 52% women, 42% men. Our management population, it splits exactly the same way. 40% of our, in our top 150 executives, it splits about 60, 40 men to, to women. And actually, it was a question I was talking to with our board. And it was interesting that our board were talking about it. But they were saying, you know, what are we doing on maternity policy came up as a, an issue. And how many people that go on maternity leave came back? And what was interesting for us is, we, I don't suppose we'd ever, I'd ever looked at the, the data. And I looked at it recently. Um, and 87% of the people that went on maternity leave came back. And that's probably something about how flexible we are when people come back. And of all the people in the last four years that have been on maternity leave, 3% have left. So it says something, we're doing something right when people come back about the flexibility we have as an employer. And that's not just at our senior level. We've got people in our very senior leadership population working uh, flexibly. Some are men, some are women. Some look after children, some look after parents. It's not, it's not about kind of a stereotypical piece that says, you know, it's women in their 30s. We've got, you know, most of the people who work in our organisation, both partners work and both partners have childcare commitments. And we set up a whole series of things whether that's support groups for parents about parenting, because it's pretty stressful, um, whether that's about flexible holiday and letting people buy more holiday. Um, you know, we find that saves us money as a company. Um, but also from an employee benefit, I sat with two of my board colleagues, or two of our very senior leaders this week, who were both talk talking about how great childcare vouchers were. You know, and I, and I think that kind of, it's, it's about a hundred little things. It's not about one big thing. And finding those big, those hundred little things for your organisation that suit the culture, and they don't cost organisations money. They, in fact, they save you money, and they create a much more sticky and flexible workforce that kind of creates a culture you can be really proud of. Joseph, can I ask you a question about business education? Um, obviously, that is a recruiting ground for supposedly the top talent in the world. Um, I know you've co-written lots of books with Henry Mintzberg, so therefore you take probably a non-traditional approach to the way management is taught, uh, particularly post-crisis. Are, are you seeing a change in, A, what the types of students you're getting want? And have you seen a marked difference in the way you guys and, and your peers across the management education industry are teaching what is going to become the top talent of tomorrow? Well, there has been a change. I think uh, we used to get much more people who had to focus on on how much money they were going to make uh, at the end of the day. And I think it's less so today. I think students are more realistic about what's going out there. Uh, so in that respect, it's been a change. In terms of a, a educational uh, approach, I've not seen any change, to be honest with you. So uh, it makes me very unpopular, you're right, when I go to uh, <laughs> conference. I, just, I was just in a recent conference just a couple of weeks ago in, in Prague, and uh, there was a huge, well, there was some sparks were flying because uh, I felt that uh, we still had the same old idea uh, of how we teach management students which is basically tool-based, toolism. You know, so you basically roll out a bunch of tools, you teach people tools, you say, here are your tools, go out and use it. But we are far, we're not still there when it comes to the soft skills, the process, the practices, the process, the soft skills. Uh, and I think that's something we, we have to, to kind of uh, break into. And I think really this, this does link up to the issue of talent, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. the issue of, of how you teach people those soft skills. 
now, to some extent, we are constrained by the nature of managerial education because we are also, in a sense, a bureaucracy. We have, they have to do a whole bunch of skills, so it's two skills oriented. Uh, and, and we're not there yet. You know, we are still not facing up to the reality of what's going on now, perhaps because subconsciously a lot of people feel that this is a transitional phenomenon. The guys will go away, will go back to the good old days, we'll just send them out there and they'll get the jobs. I don't think so. Uh, but then I, I, if we had time, I'd talk more about the way I think should be done, mm. but I think that's the situation right now. Perhaps there should be a greater awareness, people should get together and try to create a different kind of, of curriculum, different kind of approach. Simon, on that bureaucratic notion, I mean, big companies are very bureaucratic by nature. They're, they're big and therefore a bit more cumbersome. Smaller ones, the, 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 the rhetoric goes less so, and therefore you can be more creative and be more adaptable and flexible mm -hmm. and so, so forth. Is, is it as simple as that? Is it, or, or, or in a way, when we talk about making top talent more productive, um, is it just different organizations have different ways of doing it? And yeah. either can work, really? Uh, yeah. No, I do think it is as simple as that. I think when you, when you have a, a smaller organization, there comes a point at which the, the idea, the proposition that got, got them going and the personalities involved in stitching it together as a team and you know it gets to a point where suddenly it begins to for those who were part of the original idea they begin to wonder well who is this person that suddenly arrived I don't know what what point that is you know when you've got sort of 50 or 100 or 200 or whatever but in, in a bureaucratic setting it, it is in, in the larger organizations it does get more bureaucratic and I, I can remember over 20, 20 years or more ago just not being interested in going for partner track. You can see my bio and you know who I'm talking about. Um, because of the issue that was raised just a moment about women. That was one of the key things that just made me completely disinterested in working. I came back as a partner, as an interim into another organization not mentioned in my bio. Hasn't changed in 20 years. And this is the question that I was asking back in the early 1990s. If you are an accountant or a tax consultant or as a whatever, and you are male and you have qualified and you carry on for a period of three, five, seven years and you make it to partnership. And then if you are a woman that actually breaks and goes off and does, you know, you know what I mean by the sort of the, the job spec around what it is you do when you, when you give birth to a child and then you nurture it and think about that just from a health and safety point of view and the what responsibility and accountability you have for life. You try telling anybody that is a reasonable, logical, mature person that the person that's carried on doing the same thing for years is actually of higher value than the person who's gone and done something different. I don't get it. I didn't get it. I didn't want to be a partner in those firms. And they're still wrestling with the same problem today in professional services. Not obviously in media, thank God, and it's so, so enriching for somebody like me to be working in lots of different spaces, but the same attitudes prevail. And I wonder before I you know, pass whether it'll actually change. I hope it will. I hope the 30% Club and other initiatives do actually change and bring more of the freshness and the flexibility of the startup and, the, and those smaller environments to the larger environments. Because those larger ones, you know, many of them are, are dead. Some of the great big companies that we respected when I grew up are not here anymore. And some of those that are dominating the world weren't even here 20 years ago. You know? So the, the, back to the earlier point about the pace of change in the global economy. You have to, if you're, in a, if you're representing a large organization, you've got to flex. 
You've got to change your mindset. You've got to think about recontracting, as I say in coaching, with the individual employees that you have. I've worked, I've inverted commas, rescued people recently in the last year who are top talent people. They are actually at the top table. And the things that are making them think about walking away, boredom, lousy relationship with boss. They're all still in that job. We just help them sort it out see it for what it was. These things are the everyday practical things that people find, but it takes a, just a tiny, tiny bit of space, change of mind to make it work and to drive the organization forward. It's really, really simple, as I think Joseph was saying earlier, simple stuff. Well, on that note, simple, easy, Features bright. Um, <laughs> but the fact that you're all here suggests that you're looking for new ways of learning and finding new ideas. So there is some hope there. Um, I think our time is up. Thank you very much to all of our panelists and to you for those great questions. <laughs> Sorry, Karen, I didn't get the end of you.